I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who is conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. On the third day he rose again, he ascended into heaven, he is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Greetings and salutations. Welcome to another episode of Coffee, the Bible, and Page. I am Paige, your caffeine-imbued host, and as usual, here's my coffee. In the beginning, coffee. And lo, it was very good. All right, we continue our jaunt in 1 Kings. Solomon has taken over the kingdom from David. He's finished up David's loose ends. He has uh, built the temple, and now he's getting ready to build his palace. And a palace for the Pharaoh's daughter whom he has married. And uh, as usual, when I started reviewing what this morning's chapter was going to be about, I, you know, I just kind of scratched my head and going, okay, but where's the deep spiritual lessons in building a temple or building a cast, a palace? And, uh, where's the, I struggled to think about what I could pull out of this. But God is good and he's faithful. There are lessons to be pulled out of this. Some of it is just, I find fascinating. I think it's interesting. And um, I like the historical thing. I like how he has taken the tabernacle and expanded it. You're going to see what I talk about here in a little bit. But just aside from the curious and the interesting facts about how he his people did what they did to build this thing there are actual uh spiritual lessons to be pulled from this um i'll share the big one with you when we get to the end of all this so uh let's get started chapter seven it took solomon 13 years, however, to complete the construction of his palace. All right, we got to stop right there. I used to think, oh, he spent twice as much time building the palace than he did building the temple. Shows you where his heart was at. In Solomon's defense, the temple was already planned out. David had the blueprints. He had, he had everything planned out, all Solomon had to do was implement the plan. All right, so, so Solomon didn't have to bother himself with designing the temple. David had already done that. That's a huge part of any big, big building project. So when it came time to build his palace, he had to start from the very beginning in the planning stages. So naturally, building the palace was going to take longer than building the temple. David had done all the heavy lifting for him. Uh, in the planning. So let's cut Solomon a little bit of slack here. 
He built the palace of the forest of Lebanon, 104 cubits long, 50 wide, 30 high, four rows of cedar columns supporting trimmed cedar beams. It was roofed with cedar above the beams that rested on the columns, 45 beams, 15 to a row. Its windows were placed in high sets of three facing each other. All the doorways had rectangular frames. They were in the front part in sets of three facing each other. All right, first of all, all the cedar. Can you imagine how glorious that smell of that was when you walked into it? I grew up in Alaska and we have cedar there and things made out of cedar just have this glorious aroma. Cedar gives off such a wonderful smell. I can just imagine walking into the palace of the forest of Lebanon. And by the way, this wasn't his palace. This was an additional palace that he built. The uh, temple and the palace were like one huge complex. Solomon um, built everything in proximity to each other. So it was one large complex. And this, this thing called the palace of the forest of Lebanon, well, built by the cedars from Lebanon. And it must have been amazing just to walk in and just breathe in that glorious smell of cedar. And if you've never smelled a cedar chest, if you've never smelled cedar paneling, oh, you're missing out. You are missing out. All right, let's keep on going here. He made a colonnade, 50 cubits long, 30 wide. This is like a big entryway, all right? In front of it was a portico, and in front of that were pillars and an overhanging roof. So a huge porch, huge entryway. He built the throne hall, the Hall of Justice. Oh, I so want to make a Justice League reference here. But I'm going to refrain. Wait a minute, I think I just did. Ah, well, you have to forgive me. He built the throne hall, the Hall of Justice, where he was to judge, and he covered it with cedar from floor to ceiling. All right. An article I was reading, again, just reiterates the five building units described in the, these verses may have been part of one grand structure. The colonnade was a magnificent porticoed entry hall through which one entered the Hall of Justice. There was a throne hall, a royal audience chamber where the king personally heard complaints and meted out justice in cases that couldn't be handled by lesser officials. The layout of the throne room was most likely similar to that of contemporaneous throne rooms in Syria and Assyria. Usually, the throne was placed at the end of the hall, left of the entry. And continue on verse 8. And the palace in which he was to live, set further back, was similar in design. Solomon also made a palace like this hall for Pharaoh's daughter, whom he had married. All these structures from the outside to the great courtyard and foundation to, to the eaves were made of blocks of high-grade stone, cut to size, smoothed on their inner and outer faces. The foundations were laid with large stones of good quality, some measuring 10 cubits, some 8. Above were high-grade stones, cut to size and cedar beams. The great courtyard was surrounded by a wall of three courses of dressed stone and one course of trimmed cedar beams, as was the inner courtyard of the temple of the Lord with this portico. So everything was connected. This is one giant... <laughs> Uh, facility, if you will, of which the temple was a part. Now, King Solomon sent to Tyre and brought Horam, whose mother was a widow from the tribe of Naphtali, and his father had been from Tyre and skilled craftsman and was a skilled craftsman in bronze. Horam was filled with wisdom, 
with understanding and with knowledge to do all kinds of bronze work. He came to King Solomon and did all the work assigned to him. All right, what's about to be described here wasn't chronological. All right, he didn't start building all these things and then bring this guy in. This is an insert. Huram started doing all this work while the construction of the temple was in process, which only makes sense. He cast two bronze pillars, each 18 cubits high and 12 cubits in circumference. Now, a cubit was basically, uh, I think a foot and a half. It was basically the, uh, the distance, if I'm not mistaken, from the elbow to the wrist or to the tip of the fingers, can't remember. But it, so a cubit was arbitrary. Uh, if the king was a very large man, well, then the cubit would be longer. If he was a short man, it would be shorter. But generally speaking, think 12 to 18 inches uh, for a cubit. A network of interwoven chains adorned the capitals on top of the pillars, seven for each capital. He made pomegranates in two rows encircling each network to decorate the capitals on top of the pillars. He did the same for each capital. Capitals on top of the pillars and the portico were in the shape of lilies, four cubits high. On the capitals of both pillars, above the bowl-shaped part next to the network were the 200 pomegranates and rows all around. He erected the pillars at the portico of the temple. The pillar to the south he named Jaquin, and the one to the north, Boaz. The capitals on top were in the shape of lilies, and so the work on the pillars was completed. Now, this must have brought particular joy to Solomon, I would think. Uh, everything that's discussed here has meaning. You know, the the lilies, the um, the the chains, and all, all the things that were added to this had meaning. Now, I don't know what that meaning was, but as an artist myself, when I write a song, every line in that song has a meaning. And it's... Part of the makeup of an artist is to draw our inspiration from what God has around us. And so it, that it's, I'm sure all of this was that. Solomon probably saw these chains and the lilies and the carvings as meaning something special, something about God that meant something. And uh, I've read a lot of commentaries about this stuff and, and um, what they think it meant. And it very well could be what they say it was. But that's not as important to me as the fact that Solomon put the time in on this and every detail meant something. When he would walk into this temple area, when he'd walk into this area and he'd see these colonnades with their carvings and 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 uh, these colon and these pillars capped with specific carvings and, and drawings, it all meant something to him. Mm. Uh, verse 23, he made the sea of cast metal, circular in shape, measuring 10 cubits from rim to rim and five cubits high. All right, he's getting ready to describe uh, what's the, the furniture in the temple area. Now, the temple that he built is a permanent and enlarged version of the, of the tabernacle, the mosaic tabernacle. And so everything that was in the tabernacle is gonna be bigger and better in this temple. The sea, well, that's where the priests that held the water, that's where the priests would wash their hands and cleanse themselves before ministering to the non-priests and to God in the holy place. It's huge. 
but it serves its purpose. It's it's takes the place of the laver in the tabernacle. It took a line of 30 cubits to measure around it. Below the rim, gourds encircled it, 10 to a cubit. The gourds were cast in two rows in one piece with the sea, and the sea stood on 12 bulls, three facing north, three facing west, three facing south, and three facing east. The sea rested on top of them, and their hindquarters were towards the center. In other words, these bulls were facing out. It was a hand breadth in thickness, and its rim was like that of a cup, like a lily blossom. It held 2,000 baths, unit of measure for water, huge amount of water, I might add. He also made 10 movable stands of bronze. Each was four cubits long, four wide, three high. And this is how the stands were made. They had side panels attached to the uprights, and on the panels between the uprights were lions, bulls, and cherubim. And on the uprights as well, above and below the lions and bulls were wreaths of hammered work. Each stand had four bronze wheels with bronze axles, and each had a basin resting on four supports, cast with wreaths on each side. On the inside of the stand, there was an opening that had a circular frame one cubit deep. Deep. This opening was round, and with its base work, it measured a cubit and a half. Around it, its opening, there was, there was engraving. The panels of the stands were square, not round. The four wheels were under the panels, and the axles of the wheels were attached to the stand. The diameter of each wheel was a cubit and a half. The wheels were made like chariot wheels. The axles, rims, spokes, and hubs were all of cast metal. Each stand had four handles, and on each corner projecting from the stand. At the top of the stand, there was a circular band half a cubit deep. The supports and panels were attached to the top of the stand. He engraved cherubim, lions, palm trees on the surfaces of the supports and the panels, and in every available space with wreaths all around. This is the way he made the ten stands. They are all cast in the same molds and were identical in size and shape. He, he then made ten bronze basins, each holding forty baths and measuring four cubits across, one basin to go on each of the ten stands. So he placed five of the stands on the south side of the temple, five in the north. He placed the sea, which took the place of the labor, on the south side at the southeast corner of the temple. He also made the pots and shovels and sprinkling bowls. All right, these stands, they were hold water. This is what the sacrifices would be rinsed in. All right, so when they'd slaughter an animal, they'd clean it in one of these stands. And so they, they're on wheels, so these things could be wheeled around to wherever they needed to go. So Hiram finished all the work he had undertaken for King Solomon in the temple of the Lord. There were two pillars, two bowl-shaped capitals, two sets of network decorating the two bowl-shaped capitals. The 400, granite, the 400 pomegranates for the two sets of network. The 10 stands with the 10 basins, the sea, the 12 bulls under it, the pots, shovels, and sprinkling bowls. All these objects that Hiram made for King Solomon for the temple of the Lord were of burnished bronze. The king had them cast in clay molds in the plain of the Jordan between Sukkoth and Zarethan. Solomon left all these things unweighed because there were so many. The weight of the bronze was not determined. Solomon also made all the furnishings that were in the Lord's temple. There was the golden altar, the golden table, which was the bread of the presence, the lamp stands of pure gold, uh, five in the right, five in the left, in front of the inner sanctuary, the gold floor work, lamps, tongs, the pure gold basins, wick trimmers, sprinkling bowls, dishes, and censers, and the gold sockets for the doors of the innermost room, the Holy of Holies the most holy place, and also for the doors of the main hall of the temple. When all the work King Solomon had done for the temple of the Lord was finished, 
He brought in the things his father had dedicated, the silver and gold and the furnishings, and he placed them in the treasuries of the Lord's temple. All right. Interesting. Uh, I, I, do you, I don't know if you remember, if you go back in, go back into Exodus and Leviticus and where we talked about the tabernacle and uh, it's a particular st study for me that's kind of fascinating. And I, every, everything in the tabernacle uh, had meaning. You know, the, the brazen altar, the laver, the lampstand, the table of showbread, the altar of incense, the ark of the covenant, and the mercy seat. Everything had specific meaning and a place. And it was a portable temple. They could wrap it up. They had priests assigned. Their only duty was to uh, pack it up and move it when God got ready to move. And what Solomon did is he took that and made it bigger. So instead of a, a small laver, there's this huge sea. Um, instead of one lampstand, and when you went into the tabernacle on your left be a lampstand, there are now 10 lampstands inside the uh, holy place. And instead of one table, there's now 10 tables. Um, and then you had you still had the altar of incense, and then you had the holy place with the Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat. Um, Solomon just made it permanent and made it bigger. And I think that's, that, that, that's the one thought that occurred to me uh, while I was reading this. Every father, every father does their best. Uh, no father's perfect. I'm certainly not. And my father was not perfect. But my father did the best he could with what he had. Now his goal was that his children would surpass him. That was my that's the way my dad looked at it. Being a father, he wanted his sons to grow up and go past what he did. Now my dad did the best he could with what he had. He ended up uh, a, a laborer in a pulp mill and he made a good living and he was able to retire from it, not with a lot, but he he was comfortable enough and he wanted more for his kids. He wanted his kids to achieve more. And I, I think we all have. I think, he, uh, I think he'd be very proud of what I've done with my life. Well, myself with my son, I want my son to continue and build upon what I did and do better than what I did. And that's happening uh, with, with my daughter as well. I've mentioned before that um, I have I have some admirable qualities, <laughs> um, and as a musician, I'm good at what I do. But my son has taken what I do with music, and built on it, and made it bigger and better. He's now a full fledged producer. He produces albums. He's a music teacher in a in a public school system, but he's also a music producer, and he's an incredible musician in and of himself. He has uh, surpassed me. He's taken what I've done and he's built on it and made it bigger, made it better. That's, that's what every father wants. And I'm sure that is what David wanted from Solomon. And Solomon took what David did and expanded on it. He built the temple that David designed, 
but then he added his palace to it, the Hall of Justice, all these things. Um, and he took David's dream and moved it forward. My son has taken my dream. My dream for years was always to be a professional musician. All right. I've, uh, but I set it aside for 20 years or more because my children and wife needed a house to live in and they needed food to eat and clothes to wear. So I did what I had to do in order to provide for my family. You know, David did what he had to do to provide for his family. And in the process of doing that, he could not finish what he really wanted to do. He wanted to build this temple. He wanted very much to be the one that built the temple that honored the God that he served. Um, but God told him, said, no, you're a man of war. Now, that wasn't, I used to think that God was saying, you know, I thought, you know, like as a borderline criticism, David, you fight too much. I honestly think it's not that. I think God is saying, you know, you're going to be busy. You're a warrior king for a reason. And you're going to be busy with wars. And he was up until the day he died. He had wars outside the kingdom with his, you know, like, like the Philistines. And he had wars inside his kingdom. Three of his sons tried to take his throne from him. That's not a... Up until the day he died, he was fighting wars internally. And when he finally turned that over to Solomon, Solomon no longer had wars outside the kingdom or inside the kingdom to worry about. And Solomon could do what his father always wanted to do. That's the dream of every father. My son and my daughter have taken the best of what I am and improved on it, moved it forward. I couldn't be more proud of them. And that's, that's God is reminding me in this passage, in this relationship between Solomon and David, that I am really not perfect. I am so much more like David than that perhaps I want to be. And David was very imperfect. I'm very imperfect. But David's son took what David did and built on it and made it bigger, made it better. My son and my daughter have taken what I've taught them and shown them and made it bigger, made it better. That's the way it's supposed to be. And so I'm no longer beating myself up for all my shortcomings as a father. I did the best that I could do given what I had to work with. And that's what every father does. And my children have taken the good out of what I am and built on that and have moved my dreams forward. There was a day when I dreamed of being a record producer being a, a full-time studio musician. That's not to be. But I'm seeing my son make it. I had a dream when I was younger to be able to be uh, well-off financially and be able to be wise with money. I was never wise with money. My daughter works in the actuarial field. She's very wise with money. And she has taken what was a dream of mine and she's actually building on it and building a career as an actuary. She's taking what I dreamed about and making it bigger, making it better. 
That's what God does. Sometimes the dreams of the Father are realized in the work of the son or daughter. Sometimes the dreams that God gives us are dreams for the generations to come and not necessarily something that we are going to accomplish. There's a thought there or two, I suppose. Anyway, this is a good place to stop. I hope you have a fantastic, glorious day. And remember, in the beginning, coffee low, it was very good and it is very good. This is Paige. I'm out of here. Have a great day. Bye-bye.